Father, we worship you this morning. We bring you the praise and the glory that's due your name. Lord, we stand amazed by your grace, by your compassion, by your kindness. We marvel that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that he lived among us, that he died for us. He rose again from the dead that we might have life. May we honor these things in giving you worship and praise. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Please be seated. So, uh, this may come as a surprise to some of you, uh, but my appreciation for uh, Tolkien's work went up this last week. I know that's hard to imagine. But imagine my surprise when I discovered that and, uh, Smeagol and Deagle are two old English words. One means to conceal and the other means to reveal. Now, this is an amazing thing for me because J.R.R. Tolkien was a philologist, okay? That's somebody who studies words, oral and written history. So none of this is by accident. He, he knew this. And it turns out that Deagle revealed the ring and Smeagol's character. And Smeagol killed Deagle, concealed him, and then used the ring to conceal himself. Now, Smeagol and Deagle, you may not know this, were first cousins. They were very close to each other. In fact, in the book, uh, and uh, you'll understand, I'll give you more of the story if you haven't read uh, the book, that they were uh, out fishing because it was Smeagol's birthday. And Deagle thought this would be a fine present for Smeagol, and so they went, out, they went out fishing. And as they were fishing, Deagle catches a huge fish that pulls him out of the boat and and underwater, and while he's underwater, he saw a golden ring on the bottom. And he immediately picked it up. So Smeagol, uh, trying to find Deagle to uh, ensure that he was safe, he saw the ring and he asked for it. And he said, give that to us, Deagle, my love. It's my birthday and I want it. Now, Deagle, as you'll recall was not remotely inclined to give it to him. And so Smeagol went crazy, and he killed Deagle and took the ring from him. Now, in that brief story, Tolkien showed the beginning of the end of an entire age in Middle-earth. Now, remember, that's a metaphor. He's talking about <laughs> this earth. The beginning of the end. It was not on a battlefield. It was not in a great hall of a kingdom. It was not in diplomatic negotiations. No, it was between two cousins, two members of the same family, both a part of one of the most innocent of all races in Middle Earth. His point then, and all the way through his work, was that no one, no one, no one, no one, could hold the ring of power. 
And what was the ring of power? Well, I think it was, as Tolkien said, the ring of power. I mean, no one can truly wield that aside from God. But Tolkien is uh, much more subtle. Uh, For without words, he reveals, in fact, what the core sin behind all of this is. The baseline, the bottom line sin that causes and has caused from the beginning all the trouble that we face and that we know. And that is to covet. Now, for those of you Tolkien fans, I know that may not be all of you, but there are many. In the semantic range of the word to covet in the Hebrew is another word, and that is the word precious. As a philologist, Tolkien knew that, and I believe deliberately put that there because he wanted us to know that it wasn't the ring of power that was the problem. It was coveting the ring that was the issue. That's also critical to know this at this juncture. Many of us certainly know C.S. Lewis more than we know J.R.R. Tolkien. We know his works, the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, the problem of pain, and so forth and, and so on. So many books that we know and that we love. And we know all of that because God's work in Lewis. But you need to be reminded that J.R.R. Tolkien was the instrument of God that brought C.S. Lewis to that place. Where there no Tolkien, there would be no Lewis, not in our minds. Now, all this is of God, of course, I'm humanly speaking. But nevertheless, I want you to know that Tolkien knew the Bible. He knew the Bible well. And in fact, Smeagol and Deagle is a retelling of Cain and Abel. They were brothers. What was Cain's sin? Murder, of course. But what was really behind the murder? What was the motive? I mean, oftentimes in the biblical story, the most obvious motive that we speak of was envy. God's, uh, God accepted Abel's offering, but he did not uh, Cain's. But this is far more than simple envy. This was the sin of coveting, in fact. The same reason, precisely, that Smeagol killed Deagle. Now, let's pause here for just a, a moment and talk about distinctions, however subtle, between words like jealousy and, and envy and, and covet. Uh, while they may be subtle, they are important. Jealousy is, in fact, a possessive or a protective fear. It is something that comes about when we fear that we're going to lose someone that we love. We fear that we're going to lose some of our belongings or achievements or something uh, of that order to another. So, for example, a a person who you've considered a close friend all your life, somebody new comes in town and they start spending all their time with that person and begin to neglect you. That feeling that you feel inside, 
That's jealousy, whether you want to admit it or not. But that's protective. It is you want something that once was yours that you now no longer have. It's a defensive mechanism. Envy is far different. Envy is not protective. In fact, envy is aggressive. Envy is the discontented longing for people or for things or for advantages that someone else owns or the thing or the person is attached to them. So a friend goes out, and this may strike some of you, and others you'll go, I didn't even know what you're talking about. Buys a limited edition 1965 Shelby Cobra. And you want it. You don't want like it. You want it. Now that's envy. I want that one. Coveting is something different. Not different, but more. Coveting is envy plus planning. And it's planning and scheming how you're going to gain that thing. How you're going to acquire it by any means necessary to include evil ones. So, okay, John, what was it that Abel had that Cain coveted? Well, I mean, it's simple. Any notion of sibling rivalry will tell you what it was. God accepted his offering uh, Abel's offering and did not accept Cain's. Now, so what? Well, Cain was the firstborn. And the way things worked back then, the way things worked through most of the world today, is that the firstborn gets most all the goodies. And so the firstborn actually makes the offering first. They didn't do it at the same time. Even the text tells you that, gives you the order. Cain and then Abel brought his uh, sacrifice. But it wasn't accepted by God. And what happens is, if you read the text, it's fascinating because Moses was a literary genius. And when you look at the text, you'll see when they're talking about Cain and Abel, it's Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain. But when God is responding, it's Abel, Cain, Cain, Abel. And so what God did was he inverted the order. And this was the very beginning of what we see all through the Old Testament, in Genesis in particular, where the ascent of the younger over the older is a constant almost. So you have Isaac and Ishmael. You have Jacob and Esau. Even with Rachel and Leah or Joseph and his brothers all the way down to Ephraim and Manasseh, and it goes on by the way. God's acceptance of Abel's offering was something that caused inside of Cain this envy that turned into covetousness. Now the thing is, it's God coveted or Cain coveted that acceptance from God, which is not a bad thing. Oh, by the way, covet can be a good word. I I hope you know that. I'll explain it in a second. It can be a good thing. But instead of correcting his heart, what he did was he destroyed the vessel that contained the acceptance of God. He said, "If, if I can't have it, no one will. Of course, the lie is what? 
He could have had it. All he had to do was change the way he thought, the way he acted toward God. But that's not what happened. He committed murder. So coveting led to the first murder. Now we find this command against coveting in Exodus 2017. If you're uh, there uh, electronically or page, um, just you can uh, read to yourself as I read this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now all of this, I mean it may sound quaint, it may sound like that's really outdated, but all of this is incredibly relevant to each one of us today. And part of that reason is because Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, made it clear that all sin begins in the heart. The evil desires, they don't come from without us. They come from inside. They come from the heart. It should be clear to each one of us from the New Testament that it's not enough to keep the letter of the law. There are people who have, by and large, kept the letter of the law who will not enjoy the kingdom of God. God is interested in the transformation of people into people who are not focused on keeping the letter of the law, but by the Spirit of God indwelling them, naturally abide by the Spirit of the law, and therefore they don't get near the need for the letter. I mean, you really see this heart change in Romans 7. Paul tells us, and I thought this was absolutely fascinating, Paul tells us that his own sinfulness... Okay, so when did Paul realize he was a sinner? I think it was before. I think it was before Jesus met him on the road because he says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. There was something inside of Paul that was tearing him up. And it's when Jesus Christ revealed himself that the Apostle Paul said, that's it. Now I understand. But we see his revelation of his own sinfulness came to light as he considered the Ten Commandments. And everything went well, I think, until he got to the Tenth Commandment, where we're at, when he says in verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, uh, I think Paul went through a very similar process as the rich young ruler. So he's talking about the law, and the guy says, yeah, I got it. Two thumbs up, Jesus. I'm right there. And so Jesus says what to him? Go sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, and follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had a whole lot of possessions and he didn't want to let them go. Well, Paul went through a very similar process with a different ending. All right? Most likely went something like this. No other gods before me. Check. We can do that, right? Check. No idols. Never happened. 
I'm not going to. Don't do it. Don't use God's name in vain. Never have, never will. Keep the Sabbath always. I mean, I, I was, you know, from a baby. Honor my father and my mother, you bet. And other fathers and mothers as well. Don't murder. I never murdered. It's always lawful, the things that I did there, okay? All right, so that may be a little sketchy. Don't commit adultery, far be it from me. Don't steal. I'm not a thief. Don't lie. I always speak truth. Don't covet. Oh. Uh, I, I think that Paul could do the checklist on the first nine. Why? Because they're checklist items. You either do it or you don't do it. It was not until Jesus Christ came and said, No, you're not getting it. You don't understand this at all. This has got nothing to do with checklist. This is the tenth commandment here. He did with the tenth, uh, what was in the tenth to all the rest of them. This is heart stuff. You can't do checklist with coveting. There's no surface to stand on. There's no list to check off. It's not like murder or adultery because coveting deals with the heart, not the behavior. It results in behavior, but it's primarily a heart issue. And so when the Apostle Paul started dealing with his own heart, he realized, man, I am full up covetous. I am a, I am a sinner. And let me tell you this, and I, I hear this and I, I appreciate the sentiment, but it's just not true. You know where you say, if you tell them not to do it, you know the first thing they're going to do is, I, I get it. I, I get that. We're rebellious at heart and all of that. But the law, do not covet, is not what made him covet. What it did was it taught him that he had a covetous heart. In other words, it didn't make him do anything. It revealed what was already there. So when the sign says, don't step on the grass, and you go, I'm going to step on the grass, that reveals the rebellious heart. That's what that it's not making you do anything. A sign doesn't make you do anything. I hope you get that. Our rebellious hearts, that does. And Paul realized that he had a covetous heart. And when he discovered that he was a sinner full up, that, I believe, is when Jesus came on the scene because it was only then that the Ten Commandments had fulfilled its actual purpose. Not to tell you how to live your life. It was to teach you and me that each of us needed a Savior because we can't do it. There's nothing here we can do. So in both Hebrew and Greek, covet means to earnestly, earnestly desire, to dire, uh, desire something, to set the heart and mind upon it with this notion of planning how to get it. But it is used uh, in, a, in a good sense. In fact, now your translations don't do this because we're afraid of this word, covet. So they don't do this. So it doesn't say that Jesus coveted to eat the Passover with the disciples. Uh, that's what he said. In other words, it's something that he earnestly desired and he was going to do everything in his power to make it happen. Now this is in a good sense because it was legitimate. It was his right 
to have and celebrate the Passover. But this earnest desire was there. In fact, we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians to covet the best gifts. Did you know that? Yeah, that's what it says. We're to do that. We're to earnestly desire. And there's other places where it's at. Biblically speaking, it's perfectly acceptable for you to covet someone else's prayers on your behalf. Covet your prayers. That's a perfectly biblical thing. Now, unfortunately, the vast majority of the usage is not that way. The vast majority of the usage is uh, bad because it's this notion of earnestly desiring. And, and I'm going to actually clarify a little bit because some of you might be saying, well, that could be greed, that could be lust, that could be a number of things. I'll clear, I'll clear that out here in just a second. It's to earnestly desire plus to scheme to secure it any way, any means possible. By the way, that's why when people, when you see people fall from high positions like in the church, you say, how could someone who knows the Word of God so well fall so fast and so hard? Well, it's easy. I mean, it really is easy. They coveted it. They coveted something. And when you covet something, guess what? This little sign up here, the last one that completes our little deal Barb put up here, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is that thing that you covet, then everything else has lesser value to include your reputation. That is how evil and how damaging this thing is. It can core out, it can hollow out your entire life if we let it get away. In fact, it's so serious, Ephesians 5.3 puts it as among the gravest of sins. Colossians 3.5, and this is where I'll end. I'm not ending here, but I'm going to loop back around to this. It is idolatry. I mean, its terrible nature is accounted for in the Bible in a very real sense because it is, in fact, a root sin. You have a few. We all know one of them. For the love of of money is the root of all evil. Please never say the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not. I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's the, our money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Okay? And so that's a root sin. This is a root sin. In fact, it causes apostasy. We see in 1 Timothy 6. Lying in 2 Kings. We see that theft domestic troubles, and we already saw murder. And it, there's murder again. There's murder in Ezekiel. There's murder uh, in other places. It's like emotions. I, depending on who you read, depending on what research you read, there are like only six, some people even say four. There's like four or six basic emotions that are really like primal. They're sitting at the center, like anger, fear, disgust, surprise, sadness, happiness. I take anger myself as a secondary emotion, but that's a whole different discussion. But the point remains that from a primary emotion, if you look, if you, and you can just look this up, well, how many emotions are there? You know, how do you feel? Well, I don't know how I feel. Well, you can look online and you can find a wheel and it'll give you about a hundred different words that you can pick. I don't know, this is how I'm feeling. Yeah, that one right there. And... The thing is, is at the core of those, of all those hundred 
plus emotions that you can identify, that you can actually identify, there are really only four or six in the middle. This is the same way this sin operates. Of the 75 sins you can commit, and I have, that's metaphor, got it? It stems from coveting. That's the root sin. It's the primary sin that leads to a host of others. So what is it that underlies uh, coveting? In a, in a single word, I can, I, can, I can actually tell you, discontent. That's what it is. To covet means that you're not happy, or more precisely, if I use the word covetousness, is you're never happy. You're never content with what you have. There's this insatiable attempt, not only to gain, but to take what isn't yours. So, as in all my messages on the commandments, I want to tell you what coveting isn't to free those of sensitive conscience, but I want to tell you also what it is so that you can avoid it. So I want you to note first, the commandment doesn't say that you cannot admire your neighbor's house. It, in fact, it doesn't even say that you can't say, ooh, I like that so much, I'm going to get me one like it. Yeah, that's not coveting. The coveting is not that you can't say that, oh, your wife can bake a cherry pie. That's not, that's, that's not coveting. Coveting is not that you can't uh, also recognize the strength or utility of their ox or donkey. Okay, think like a Dodge Ram 2500, maybe a 3500, maybe a Beamer. It says we must not covet those things. We must not earnestly desire those things such that we take them to us. James 4 says, what is causing the quarrels and fight among you? Don't they come from that evil desires that are at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have. You can't get it, so you fight and wage war and take away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask for it. And then, you know, James drives the stake in it. And even when you ask, you don't get it. Because you ask amiss. Because you want to consume it for and on yourself. And that's the baseline of this. It's all about you. Coveting means that it's all about you. It is all about you and what you want. You're not happy with what you have. And you want to take what someone else has so badly that you plan to take it away from them somehow, some way. And all of this leads to a simple question. And oh, by the way, simple does not mean easy. Von Clausewitz on war said that everything in war is simple. But the simple is so hard. So don't, un don't misunderstand me when I say the answer is simple. Simple does not mean easy. But it asks this question. Are you content? That's the question. Are you content? Are you content with what the Lord has given to you in your life. And most of us have moments of contentment. 
truth be told, though, I think even if we were in paradise, I don't mean in glory, I mean we had everything that we wanted, I think there would still be an element of discontent because we are broken people. We're broken. It seems like the more we have, the more we want. If we're here, we're rich. You may not think of yourself as rich, but if you look at the world, you're on top of the heap just by being in this room. We're so broken. But we think to ourselves, if only, if only I had this, if only I had that. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that uh, wanting is, is, uh, is bad. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, or trying to at least get near to is this notion of when do our legitimate desires turn into envy, turn into uh, coveting. And essentially, coveting, you can automatically know this. When you want something that's not rightfully yours, that's coveting. That's simple. That's simple. If it does not belong to you, and you want it so bad that you're willing to scheme to get it, that is coveting. When it becomes a controlling passion in your life, I cannot be content, I cannot be happy unless I have that. But that's coveting right there. My happiness depends on it. I mean, a new house would be nice, but I'm telling you what, if your happiness and contentment depends on that new house, you're going to be in for a real disappointment because you will neither be happy nor content. If it's the same with a car, it doesn't work. As soon as we say in our heart, in our mind, I need this thing or this person or to meet this goal in order for me to be content with my life, you're bordering on coveting. Maybe even have crossed the line. I mean, most of these other sins that we've talked about, they're easy to spot. You can, you, 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 they're easy to say, yes, no, checklist. This is not. It's an invisible thing. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made all of this heart stuff. And no one is without sin except for Jesus Christ. So what's the antidote to this poison that can bring such ruin and misery? The biblical antidote is easy. It's contentment. I should have said simple. (laughs) It's not easy. So in closing, let me share with you four things the Bible tells us. Really just a series of verses. First of all, be content with the Lord. I mean, we need to learn to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing. Hear this. The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Turn the focus back to God. Second, be content with righteousness. A lot of us spend more time thinking about unrighteousness than righteousness. And I'm not talking about unrighteous thoughts. I'm talking about other things that the David said it this way. Don't be envious of the wicked. 
Psalm 37 says, Don't fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, we all know that last part. But the first part was in reference to desiring the things that evil men and women have collected to themselves. Third, be content with what you have. Psalm 37, 16 says, Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of the wicked. In, uh, in Proverbs uh, 13, uh, many of you probably have this uh, memorized when you have this uh, uh, fellow named Agur uh, or something like that. Uh, he prayed this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And what a great prayer. Just give me all just the, the things that I need. Paul wrote in Philippians four, eleven through thirteen, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. This is striking as it you, if you do the comparison contrast with Romans seven. To be content, whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Finally, be content with God's good gift of life. I mean, even as sobering, as depressing as the book of Ecclesiastes can be, Solomon writes this beautifully. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil this is the gift of God. Life. That we got up this morning. That we were able to come here. God has given us the good gift of life. And we should be thankful for that each and every day. I mean, the real question is... I mean, it's kind of a silly question in a way. Because why covet when you can enjoy what God has already given to you? And the answer, of course, is because we're, we're sinners in need of a Savior. At the base of all this, the real sin is idolatry. And coveting is really a slap in the face of God. It says, God, I don't like what you've given me. Not good enough. I'm going to take these different things instead on my own. The history of Tolkien's ring of power can only be understood from the drive to covet. Only one who does not covet can wield it. And there was one, Jesus Christ by name, who did not covet. Rather, he came to save. As I said before, the Ten Commandments aren't there to show us how to live. They're to teach us that we need a Savior. And Jesus, who lived 
on this earth who died on the cross and who rose from the dead calls you to life today. God's Holy Spirit will give you the strength to grow as you move along. Because you can't do it. It, It's a transformational. It's not an entrance exam into heaven. (laughs) It's a school teacher designed to lead us to Christ. Father, we're grateful for all the good gifts that you've given to us. And we're thankful. And we're so appreciative of all that you give and all that you do all that you are. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.